by Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, Scatman Crothers, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Today we are uh, starting up a brand new film review cask, uh, dabbling into the world of Stephen King again. This one's called King's Landing Part 2, and we tackled this earlier in April for the release of Pet Cemetery. We're doing the same thing in lead up to the release of It Chapter 2, so... Being that Matt lost the summer box office bet last week, we're also, we're also unveiling a brand new bottle. Why don't you introduce that for us? So this week we're doing something that's maybe the most beautiful bottle we've seen. This is Chestnut Farms with a really cool looking horse on the cover. Uh, this is not the first time through this bottle for me, but certainly the first time that we've been through this on the cask. So let me pour us each one mm-hmm. as we start this wonderful endeavor. I'm drinking in my Overlook Hotel mug that I got from Last Exit to Nowhere. Seemed apt for today. Indeed. All right. Just a little spillage. All righty. Mm. Here's to you, Jesse. Cheers. Here's to you all. Rice smile. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's pretty good. Yes, that is terrific. I can't tell the color in my mug because my mug's purple brown <laughs> so there you go there you go little hint of vanilla mm-hmm. there's some caramel tones in there uh it's smooth but what i like about this mm-hmm. is it's smooth but it's got that little punch at the end just to let you know that it's there yeah for everybody that's out there listening if you're a bourbon fan as jesse and i obviously are there's a movie that you've got to check out jesse recommended it to me oh a month maybe a month and a half two months ago it's on Hulu, I believe. It's called Neat. It's hosted by Steve Zahn. And essentially, it's the history of bourbon. I'm just going to say yeah. it's 85 to 90 minutes that you probably should carve out some time this week and watch. Yeah, it's fun. It's it's really, it's, it's smart. It's funny. There's some really interesting history in there. Uh, and what can you say other than like you probably should watch it? Yeah, and it's a short watch, 70, 80 minutes. Yeah. It's well worth your time. Very informative and really well done. Neat. N-E-A-T. Neat. Like how you would serve bourbon straight up. Perfect. Well, let's get right to it, Matt. Our flight and nightcap questions for the next month-ish, two-month-ish are going to be kind of all around horror. Like, I'm so excited to be in this genre because this is kind of like where we like to live in film, like within this genre, whether that be slasher or paranormal or demonic or found footage found footage whatever there's so many different ways you can play with with this genre that's been literally alive since the advent of cinema like edison times like right horror's just like progressed through all these different iterations so being that we're talking about the shining today the shining has a very interesting and perplexing ending that we're definitely going to talk about but that warranted and kind of piqued my interest to talk about Matt, what are your top three favorite endings in a horror film? This was quite the discussion piece in my head with the 15 personalities in there. And Mm. then also this earlier today with just my better half. (laughs) Here's the thing that is really intriguing to me about horror. 
I think it plays well for people that get into horror because it allows us to explore the final voyage that we're not going to be able to tell anybody about because it's death. Yeah. So we sort of live through an experience that we all have to, unfortunately, cross that bridge and maybe get a little bit more comfortable with what it might be like. And here's the thing that's actually the positive spin on horror. Mm -hmm. If it happens in film, which very rarely are deaths in horror film pleasant, Mm -hmm. then what I go through when it comes to mine is going to be significantly better. Oh, yeah. So if I can survive that, then I think I'm practicing in a weird way for my own. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that being said, endings of these are real. Endings of horror films are really important Mm -hmm. because it's not only the end of the story, but it's the end of that chapter that's kind of psychotherapizing, analyzing your own self. Yeah. So that whole lead-in gets to a question, Mm -hmm. what happens if the ending isn't officially an end? Yeah. So it gets into a really important movie in a subgenre of horror, mm-hmm. which obviously is Halloween. Mm. The boogeyman is something that's existed in the bed or the closet since the dawn of human and sleep. Mm-hmm. And we play it out in cinema where we think we've defeated the ultimate boogeyman only to find out at the end of the movie Michael Myers is, in fact, not at the bottom of this awning, this mm-hmm. balcony. Yeah. We saw him fall. Yeah. But he has supernaturally yeah. managed to get up and go away. Now, yeah. I feel like I should sort of apologize because in the wheelhouse of films, mm-hmm. this is more yours than mine. Yeah. But I'm going to steal it from you anyway. I think you might be shocked that it didn't make my list. And I think that shocked, ending, yes. while I do like it, I think would be um, more impactful if it didn't get kind of dredged by the endless sequels that that franchise encapsulates. Okay. If it was kind of left as kind of like the coda on the end of like a pretty great film and that was the mystery that we always have with that, I would, yeah, really, really dig that ending. But, you know, the end of that film is we get the the final montage of the little static shots of the houses and the streets and we hear the heavy breathing just kind of showing that the shape isn't just gone he's everywhere and you're not going to be able to find him and i like that the ambiguity of it all my so, go ahead. When i want to defend the movie that i don't need to defend to you because mm-hmm. it's on your shelf of top five ever right? yeah is it the movie's fault that the ending isn't so good that it became so successful that the bastardization of the inkillable boogeyman then was born or like can you hold that film at fault because and, let, let, me, let me answer my own question and yeah. I'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. Some Like It Hot yeah. is a great film, but it doesn't play as well today because we've seen mm-hmm. the boys as girls or the girl on the boys soccer team or whatever the hell that has been done ad nauseum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right, go ahead. But no, Some Like It Hot's still brilliant, so Yeah, sure. I don't know if that's a fault of the filmmakers because they were just trying to make this movie and, and get it released. It was the success of it all kind of stemming into sequel territory. Carpenter and Deborah Hill never had the intention to ever do a two and then get involved with three and then so forth where they just jump ship. So, yeah, it's 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 the way it ends. But one of the films I'm going to talk about later has kind of a similar ending with no sequel attached to it. So, yeah. So my three are going to kind of fall within. They're either just so shocking or they're just left with total ambiguity. And my uh, perfect segue. Let's yeah, hear it. my number three is actually a film from 1983, I believe, Sleepaway Camp. 
Now, I'm going to spoil all the endings on the rest of my list. I'm not going to spoil this one. This is one of the best twists I've ever seen in a film. And the first time I saw it, my jaw was literally dropped. Like, I couldn't believe, like, what was happening. So, to all the Rye listeners out there, please seek out Sleepaway Camp. Just know it's, it's a summer camp film. And the revelation of who the killer is and the reveal. Motives. The motives and the reveal is... You'll never forget it. You'll never forget that that, that moment of her going, ah. <laughs> it's, it'll be burned in your retinas, but in a good way. It's a fairly formulaic walk up to that point. But yes. For everybody out there, it's like, I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. The last, what, two minutes, 45 seconds? Yes. Is worth the price yes. of the previous hour and a half <laughs> it's, before. It totally is, yeah. You got to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I would love to talk about it, and we might want to... Maybe put a moratorium on not the spoiler of that insofar as mm-hmm. in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. We're going to spend, what, the next six to seven weeks in horror. I know this movie's going to come up again in some manner. It's the time of the season, yeah. So there's a period where we're going to be uh, hope, hope. forced to sort of give away what this is. Yeah, hopefully we can restrain ourselves. Okay, Matt, what's your number two? I had a completely different idea that I was going to go with, and then this one popped into my head. So I was going to go at number two with The Wicker Man. Okay. And that had a lot to do with sort of my upbringings and the pagan feeling to that. And mm-hmm. as they drowned out, uh, you know, the the detectives, Christian hymns. like, uh, And then I got to be thinking about Eyes Without a Face. Mm. Georges Franju mm-hmm. in what I would argue is the birth of slasher horror. The general idea is his daughter is disformed or disfigured, disformed, disfigured from an auto accident. Mm-hmm. And her father has survived. And essentially, he slips unwitting women a roofie and brings them home and then cuts off their faces to use as his daughter's new skin on her damaged face. Mm-hmm. That's not even the most terrifying part of the <laughs> no, film for no, me. Yeah, yeah. It's actually kind of a slow, rather pedantic, very French horror yeah. film. But when it plays, it plays well. But the ending of that movie, mm-hmm. and here's why it made my list. I yeah. was I found myself thinking about it. Mm-hmm. My wife came around the corner and said, "Hey, Matt," and I literally jumped because yeah. I was so thought uh, heavy with what was going on regarding that film. The ending is basically Christiane, who's the daughter, mm-hmm. leaving her father's house after he's been mauled mm-hmm. and devoured by his dogs, who he's tested on multiple times in the film. Yeah. As she floats off into the forest with that weird mask that is mm-hmm. everything that Vanilla Sky tried to be. Yeah. And these birds in a rather like fucked up Snow Whitey yeah. like moment descend upon her mm-hmm. in a rather tranquil and serene ending with this very interesting music. Like thinking uh, about it right now, I actually yeah. have goosebumps yeah uh i didn't want to it's very fairy tale like it's it's really bizarre yeah creepy Mm -hmm. that whole movie is so creepy and dare i say a happy ending of sorts but kind of not quite either like it's weird how it plays out i guess happy insofar as she's out of her father's terrible reign yeah but to what end yeah exactly there is an absolute psychopath Mm -hmm. leashed yeah unleashed at that moment yeah that's a good mass yeah and the way her gown Catches the ground, so it looks like she's floating. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, oh. yeah. That's a good one. Oof. Another, another, another great film. Excellent. My number two. Gonna go back to 1982 for this one. The director we already mentioned, John Carpenter's The Thing. This time, 
part of the reason um, why I like a film like The Shining, and we're going to talk about this here in a little bit, is kind of what's left up to the viewer's interpretation. More times than not, we're really spoon-fed, you know, what we're supposed to digest by way of the writer and the director. But a lot of times you'll have moments like the end of the thing where you literally have two characters left and we're not told who's who and who's who's going to survive. And then the film kind of ends with just kind of like a wry laughter from Kurt Russell's MacReady. And my take on that is I think MacReady's actually the thing. And he's just kind of like given Childs his like last like hurrah. He's going to get him like. Next. Really? That's where you're that's at what I, that That's film? what I think. Yeah. Interesting. But... Who knows what the real meaning or interpretation of that is? Like, I like when endings take on a life form outside of the film, and the thing is definitely fits that vein. That's a movie that you've loved for a long time, mm-hmm. and upon our first discussions, you know I wasn't the biggest fan of that film. Mm-hmm. I didn't hate it, but it was just it was just a movie. Mm-hmm. That's a movie that's actually aged better for me. Yeah, and that's that's saying something because yeah. I I don't think we say that a lot on this podcast. Typically, films go like, the other way; they show their age. This movie is better each time I watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's interesting that you think that McCready is the thing. Because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Childs is the thing. Yeah. But regardless, it doesn't matter because yeah. it's curtains for everybody. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that, that's something we just don't need to see. And I mean everybody. Like, yeah, the, the, thing, the, the it, world. It's, it's over. <laughs> yeah. It's over. Yeah, that's, 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 that's great. So that's number two for me. My number one? Mm-hmm. We've talked about it before. Yeah. It's The Mist. That's not just my favorite ending in horror. That's top five endings all time ever. Yeah. Uh, you know, I could go into that again. There's an entire podcast on that. Back to the first issue. Yeah. Stephen King. Yeah. It's just so unseen and unfair. And the thing that sets that up for me really well is there's moments in that film where the good guys start to maybe win. Mm -hmm. And then here's what's crazy about it. The ending of the movie is the good guys are really going to win. Yeah. The military showed up to take care of all these monsters. Yeah. But it's too late for Thomas Jane because he's already killed everyone that he loves. Yeah. I know that we've, again, I don't want to do the whole podcast again because it's on the podcast. Yeah. That was met with a lot of frustration and concern and maybe even discontent from viewers. Yeah. I think those people that said that are full of shit. They're just not being honest about what that ending really is. And how it, it made it made them feel, how it impacted them. Like the sheer shock of it all. It just, you, you don't forget that one either. I think that's the great thing about these horror film endings. I think they're so memorable in their own right that like they leave a like a serious imprint on your moral psyche that stays with you for the rest of your life like this is another one of those the burden of having to sacrifice your loved ones Mm -hmm. so they're not consumed by these monsters is one thing Mm -hmm. the second thing is sacrificing them for those means to only find out that the military was just around the corner coming to rescue you anyway. Mm-hmm. It is such an unfair ending for Thomas Jane. Yeah. But that kind of unapologetic writing and directorial efforts. Mm-hmm. Darabont, right? Yep. Um, and I mean it. Like, that really is in my... I don't know what the ranking is, but that's top five that's good ever. Sh- that's good shit. Yeah, that's good. All right, go. All right, number one, I, I, I have two, and they're, the, and they're both kind of... They're very different. So the first one's actually the original Friday the 13th, 1980. Yeah. And just kind of that jump scare type of ending. You know, we, we've been talked about like Jason's kind of like the MacGuffin of that film because his mom's doing all the killing. 
And, you know, we get this great moment where Alice is on the canoe and he leaps out of the water and pulls her in. And if you don't know anything about this ending or kind of the, the way the music's it, it's going to lead toward like a happy ending, man, does it throw you for a loop and it terrifies the hell out of you. But the seedlings that that little ending showed of what it led to for that Friday franchise, which was probably the most profitable of all the three horror franchises in the 80s. This was kind of a little seedling of that. And I, I just love the jump scare element. It's still effective to this day. Sure. To couple that with Black Christmas from 74, talking again about ambiguity. Literally, you think the killer's been been killed and we're left with Olivia Hussey in the room as everyone leaves. We linger on her and then the camera pans to back to the attic and we hear Billy talking again. And then just the phone ringing and ringing and ringing until credits roll and he got away he's still out there he's probably gonna kill her now that she's she's in the house alone and we never got a sequel to ever see if that ever happened or not and i i like that about horror i like what it leaves up to the viewer and i don't think black christmas has done it better than any other film like that's that's one of my favorites but matt i gotta tell you this was hard for me to do i wanted to do the mist i wanted to do halloween psycho was in there night of the living dead Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Donald Sutherland version, the, yeah. the the Descent. Like, there's there's so many great ones I wanted to pull from, but those are the three that I always tend to really come back to with this genre. I wrestled with every one of those films that you just brought up for a moment or two as well. Yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten all about Donald Sutherland's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and then I remembered the ending of that film on some research. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, where, yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. a terrific list. It, it just it just says something about the genre, like and as we'll talk about in the coming weeks with you know where we're going with our this cat, which we I think we've decided to call this the barrel. This is like a barrel category of, of films that we're going to be discussing. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Sure, and sort of sure. Explain to them why we came to this sort of barrel approach. Sure. I think part of the selection of films is certainly what we think viewers will like to listen about also has to do with seasonally what's coming out Mm -hmm. and it's pretty obvious what the next season is halloween yep so it seemed just a natural fit Mm -hmm. to kind of stay in this horror category number Mm -hmm. one because it too is coming and that's going to be i think the next big movie that you and i want to talk about and look at so it fits to do that and the timing of the podcast Mm date as such and then when it is over and i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves and and let the cat out of the bag yeah but it fits into a mid-September to October theme yeah. because there's some other stuff in there that we want to hit. Yeah, and, it, and it's just the perfect time to talk about it because we're not really going to tackle horror in like February, like or like months like that. This is like this is the time to do it. So clearly, let's do it right. All right, I'm ready. Here's to your list. Yeah, got my room reservation at the Overlook. Let's get right down to it. I hope you don't get lost in the hedge maze, Matt. Red room. <laughs> let's get to our review breakdown of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining opens up with some over-the-head camera angles over the lake as we follow Jack's car to his interview at the Overlook Hotel. And the first thing I'd like to kind of, that just jumps out at me right away is the camera work in this film. This is one of the first-ish movies of sorts, you know, Halloween being one of the other ones, to use utilize the steady cam. So for your film aficionados out there, you know, usually with film cameras you have to lay dolly track. 
for, for your camera. This is very time consuming. Uh, you have to consider the restraints of your set and your location. So the Steadicam actually attached the camera to a person and he was able to walk with it and follow them. And I think it fits this film very well just because the camera takes on an almost ghostly like viewpoint uh, for omniscient for the viewer. Yes, totally omniscient. I, I see it in this kind of overhead and that's not Steadicam, that's a helicopter. But we're just—it's the way we watch the characters glide throughout the set of the Overlook Hotel. It's, it's really ghostly, and for a film that you know, we're going to talk a lot about the parallels between King's Book and Kubrick's film. King's Book is very overtly ghost. It's a ghost book, ghost haunted house book. One of the most interesting things I kind of found was that, like you know, Kubrick was able to you know put this. This film together, do 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 a horror film without, and I'm going to quote Steve Bodorowski. He says, the result is a brilliant, ambitious attempt to shoot a horror film without the gothic trappings of shadows and cobwebs so often associated with the genre, which that's that's kind of cool. Like it's a it's a haunted house ghost film without it being like Robert Wise's The Haunting or, you know, those kind of gothic films like that. Is this auteur horror? Could be. Yeah. That's what I yeah sort of took away from this. If I, I tried to summarize it in mm-hmm. a genre, mm-hmm. it's horror, no question, mm-hmm. but it's different horror. Mm-hmm. The other thing too, back to the Steadicam versus to- Dolly Track. Essentially, think of laying a rail system yeah. that had a contraption on it that you slid the camera back and forth on like a locomotive, and that was the angle that you got, and you were limited to the length of the track. Yeah, rather surprised it took this long to come up with the Steadicam because it's it was actually the... much more efficient if yeah. you think about it. Mm-hmm. Just put it on a person, mm-hmm. and if you can remove the bobble of the walk as it's shooting, mm-hmm. that's a much more efficient version than picking up track and laying in. Having been on set and worked with yeah. a good friend who is yeah. a grip and yeah. playing dolly track, mm-hmm. that's a pain in the ass, man. Totally. The ground's never straight. There's all these little, uh, you know, when you go to the restaurant and the table's not even, and the waitress comes up and puts the the napkins under the table leg like that literally happens 25 times on the dolly track yeah and it's an outdoor shot mm-hmm. i don't know why it took so long so i will give Krupit credit and it does create an interesting element and here's what's absent in that mm-hmm. okay so let me give you another movie to back up this point okay. the only problem i have with hitchcock psycho mm-hmm. is that the final sequence takes place during the day mm-hmm and as Marianne is running into the Bates house, it's at two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> yeah. It plays better at night. And the common trope in horror is night. Yeah. Because it, it hides. You can't see night, night, night. You know what you can't tell what's day or night in The Shining? Most of the film. Yeah. Because it's in the hotel. Indoors. And there's plenty of light. Yeah. So it's an interesting sort of well-illuminated mm. horror film. Yeah. Okay. Uh... No, and I think I think it, later it's 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 shown very well, especially when Danny's on his little three wheel trike as as it, they follow him throughout the inner workings of the hotel. Right. But the other thing that jumps out to me in this opening bit is the music. So Kubrick was never one to work with like a composer like a John Williams or Ennio Morricone. He kind of tapped pre existing classical orchestrations and then 
subjected them into the film, much like in 2001 and uh, Clockwork Orange. Ugh. I don't know where he found this music, but oh man, it, it gives me the wheelies. And as as he pulls up to the, it's it's almost like the music like screams. And then later, when Jack totally loses his mind, I swear to God, it's like they took a buzz saw to the orchestra instruments, the, to the cello, to the violin, because it sounds like hell. But it, it it totally gives you the creep. So again, props to Kubrick for kind of finding these really off the beaten path. Uh, chamber orchestrations for his soundtrack yeah no um yes so we get right to it and and kind of you know our introduction of jack torrance played by jack nicholson uh in consideration also for this role were much (laughs) kind of take your pick of actors of the time robert de niro robin williams harrison ford but jack fits it pretty well just but like he already seems psychotic already just it's like those eyebrows he has and that like that shit-eating grin that he has like he looks nuts. And this was a problem for Stephen King. He really opposed the casting of Jack Nicholson. Did he want Robin Williams? You know, Is it because they did some lines together before the before the casting happened? You know who he did want? And this is kind of fascinating. I'd like to have seen where this went. King actually really liked Christopher Reeve for Jack Torrance, who had just done Superman two years prior. That would have been cool. Interesting, because King wrote Jack Torrance as the every man who, through the nature of the house and its ghostly intentions, the house drives him insane. And kind of another quote that I found is uh, Kubrick's Jack is about an already insane man who struggles to remain sane. Like, I think there's two very different interpretations of how that character can be played. I don't, I don't know say if I like one or the other, but I, I do really like Jack Nicholson's performance in this film. Uh, yes, I do too. I, I will actually say I think Shelley Duvall's performance is equally important Mm -hmm. here's my thing about this let's take easy rider and one flew over the cuckoo's nest in comparison to the shining yeah there is without question from the earliest works of jack nicholson to the later works of jack nicholson a devilish quality about him Mm -hmm. and it is his eyebrows and that whole thing if i mean you could even go to like a comedy uh the witches of eastwick and he's even doing it there i think this movie is it's arguable but it's the most jack jack nicholson film yeah and i think this is where he's born Mm -hmm. and with all of the films that he did since this film and i would even argue the joker has an element of that yes yes Mm -hmm. right yeah that scene at the bar is very joker-esque thank you okay you just took the words right out of my mouth Mm -hmm. um I struggled with it because it's like this is the movie where the characterization of Jack Nicholson is born. Even in like About Schmidt, there's that element. Mm -hmm. And I can't get past, oh, this is just Jack being Jack. I have to remind myself, this is where Jack became Jack. I'll even give you The Postman. Always Rings Twice, that remake. Yeah. Um, No, no, I can can agree with you. He's just very Jack. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how he is. But I like it, I, and I think that's why I like him as the Joker, why I like him as his character. And we got to talk about like, what, a, what a run in the 70s for Jack Nicholson. No joke. For Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, Chinatown, One Floor of the Cougarsness leading up to The Shining. Like, damn. Like, it's killing it. That's a killing decade. Um, so, yeah, I like I like the, the character. If we want to truly see the, the, the insane, and it's I don't think it's better exemplified than that scene when they're playing out in the snow and then they cut to Jack and it's just this slow panning of him just... Like looking out and not blinking. He's just like that. He's just nuts. Like he's totally snapped. 
Like I buy him like snapping and his maniacal craziness than you know some other actors that might kind of do this thing because he plays it so well. The part that really threw me this time or, or got my attention in the first third of the film this time was mm-hmm. actually during the interview. Mm-hmm. So he shows up and they talk about what the job is for over overseeing the overlook mm-hmm. through the winter months, blah, 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 blah. He shows up to that interview. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you picked up on this too. Did you notice his hair? Mm-hmm. There's that piece in the back, that cowlick in the back mm-hmm. that is unkept and sort of sticking out. So he's fairly dressed. He's got that god awful double knit green tie on, but that's the style then, mm-hmm. I, I guess. Yeah. It kind of is put together in a way that doesn't work despite his best efforts Mm -hmm. and his hair in that wasn't just a mistake yeah because if you go later to the end of the film we see that he has some really nice hair later yeah yeah. and we'll get to that yeah but it's 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 a little cue or clue yeah to the people that are watching like something's off with this guy yeah and it may be put together yeah but it's tenuous man yeah isn't that weird? Did you did you pick up on that too? Yeah, and I've always noticed that. I think it's I think it's just the shell of like, you know, this like monster waiting to be burst. And as we kind of see that unfold with like what he did to Danny, and I'm going to argue too coming up in the next scene, maybe he's he's not the he didn't just abuse Danny, but maybe he abused Wendy too. Yeah, why would he stop with just one? Yeah. So this this is kind of like very uh 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 Barry Nelson, who actually played the first on-screen James Bond in like a no-non BS like television adaptation of Casino Royale, plays Stuart Ullman, the caretaker of this hotel, and he's kind of the expository man for this scene. Uh, some of the early dialogue scenes in this beginning kind of drag on a little bit, but I think they're important because they're kind of laying the groundwork for what we're about to swim in for the next two hours. But kind of tells them like what the job is, Jack. You need to be here because. You know, the road's ice over. It's too much work to maintain to open. You need to make sure the boilers don't freeze over. And, you know, not a lot of people can do it. A lot of people, you know, get cabin fever. Matt, I would last two days at this job. Like, I would lose my mind. I don't know if you remember, uh, maybe it was like 10 or 11 years ago, we got a real bad snowstorm here. And I just remembered it was like the first time. And we don't get snow a lot here where we're at. But Or if we do, it's like... A half a day of snow yeah. and it melts off. But I remember being stuck in the house literally for three to four days because it was that bad. And I was losing it. Can you imagine being here for five or six months at this job? Like, damn. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. And praise God that Red Dead Redemption was available because that's what I did for those three or four days. But I literally sat on the chair with yeah. my family. Yeah. And they were you know, doing whatever they were doing. And you couldn't go anywhere because yeah. everything was frozen. Yeah, this is an unenviable job. But for Jack... That was like five days. Yeah, exactly. For uh, for uh, for Jack though, it's an opportunity because he's a struggling kind of writer, teacher of sorts, and this is perfect time for him to hammer away at some writing material. We could we could do the use <laughs> use this for our writing. Yeah. That's for sure. We would knock some out. It might be kind of crazy though. Yeah. But we we're, we're cut we cut back between him and and we're introduced to Danny who has this imaginary friend named Tony who mm-hmm. lives in his lives in his stomach and he talks through his finger. Uh, man, this kid's creepy. You know, I don't think I would try to go back and remember if Kubrick ever worked with children in any of his other films because this itself had to have been a challenge, being that he's so meticulous with how many takes he likes to do uh, during his film shoots. You know, the only one that comes to mind immediately in that would be Full Metal Jacket, and that's the the kid that's mm. shooting from the, t- the tower. Yeah. But not, can I say one thing about that? That's yeah. 
the youth in Asia, mm-hmm. youth in Asia, mm-hmm. and euthanized. Mm-hmm. That's not a mistake. That movie's really smart. But okay, yeah. yes, that, that's the only one I can think of. Yeah. So yeah, that that's got to that's got to be hard, especially because this was a shoot that lasted over a year. They were changing the scripts every day. Is that right? I did not know that. I don't think Nicholson or Shelley Duvall really got along with Kubrick a lot, just because of just kind of like the gauntlet that he put him through. That the scene that's coming up where Jack's taunting her, like Wendy, light of my life, like that that whole bit. They they shot that like 140 ish times, like. It's just exhausting, like mentally, physically, and then just the type of film it is. It just wanes on you, like like seriously. The other thing, too, you get right away is as Wendy and Jack get to the hotel. Mm-hmm. Again, not done on accident and not organic, like definitely at Kubrick's direction. Yeah. What an ugly couple they are. Yeah. Like, Shelley Duvall, again, I feel like I talk about this every week, and it's the categories of, of my interests of, of females in film and what that does to me. <laughs> Shelley Duvall is so out of place well, just with that Texas accent and her coffee-stained yellow teeth. Well, just call her olive oil because okay, she's, well, I mean, she's kind of playing that again. That's about the only other role that's significant that she gets is Robert Altman's olive oil. Mm-hmm. Which that's all, we, we should do that movie someday. <laughs> yeah. But she's really hard to look at. Yeah. But at the same time, there is... A commonality in her that's slightly, and maybe more than slightly, compelling insofar as that I'm interested in yeah. her. I, you know, she's on screen, and you're going to think that I'm crazy when I say this. When she's on screen with Jack, I think she's a bigger visual presence than he is. Because she's just so gangly and angular and ugly in such a way that it's almost sort of weirdly beautiful. And it's the and it's the portrayal too. Like the Wendy in the book is more of like kind of like a take a charge Ellen Ripley type of female. Kubrick went with the Wendy that's more meek, passive, gentle, kind of mousy, like kind of like that Fort Worth, Texas accent. Which yeah, she's literally born in Fort Worth and never lost that accent. But you know what? If Jack did, in fact, in this drunken tirades of who knows how long they 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 they've been here, and this is why I like Kubrick's ambiguity. He probably beat beat her to the shit one day. And that's why she's so reserved in her own right. She comes across as really meek and like beaten. Yeah. Yes. You, and you battered woman syndrome. And you physically see that. And that's not told in the film. That's just an interpretation. But I kind I can kind of buy into that. So after we cruise through the overlook and kind of get the layout, we meet a character that I find perplexing. Yes. And that's the Scatman Crothers, Mr. Halloran. Mr. Halloran. Yeah. The head chef. Mm-hmm. He immediately takes a shine to Danny. And we understand. <laughs> he takes a shine to Danny. See how I did that? You like that was I almost spit the bourbon all over the mic. That's the Kubrick in me. There you go. They have an instant relationship because he picks up on Danny's ability, mm-hmm. whether it's telekinetic, which it isn't, whatever the precognitive. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah. And they share a discussion about what that means, why it's called shining, I guess, and what it means going forward with places that he's allowed to go and not go into the hotel. Mm-hmm. He almost becomes a better father for Danny. Than Jack. I wouldn't even, not almost. He's a better father to Danny than Jack is. Mm-hmm. And so now we've pretty much met the cast. Danny, Halloran, Jack. And Wendy. Wendy. Yeah. So we're pretty much set for what you mm-hmm. have to work with in the film. Yeah. So th- this is excellent, and I think this is you know also where we differ too because in in the novel Jack and Danny have a closer relationship. You know there was these instances, and Jack had this whole past with his father, 
But then I kind of like what Kubrick does with this too. It's a real, it's that kind of like that child who wants to look up to dad, but he can't because dad's just so either ashamed or he doesn't have that relationship with his son. Unavailable? Yeah. Not only because he's crazy, but he's trying to be a writer. Yeah. And we get that. So let me back up what you just said. We get that in that really crazy scene Mm -hmm. where Wendy comes in to bring him... Uh, to take his order for lunch, yeah. gonna make, and he she interrupts him, She's and a, then she, he lets her have it. Yeah, doesn't he? Yeah, Wendy, fuck off! Yeah. Can't you see I'm writing? And it's very Jack, you know. Yeah. Like, yes. Why don't you do yourself a favor and get the fuck out of here? Like, yeah, yeah. Th- that's the moment. Like, that's the turning. Was point. that Christian Slater or Jack Nicholson? You just did right there. Maybe both. All right. <laughs> Who possessed me right there? Mm-hmm. No, but it. Uh, that's kind of like the breaking point for like kind of like Jack. Like we kind of see him like now he's starting to snap a little bit. Like we see him writing and what that becomes like is totally insane later. But uh, book Jack really. Is, doesn't struggle with the writer's block as much as film Jack. He actually, in the book, there's this whole subplot that I'm glad Kubrick actually took out that Jack finds like this scrapbook in the boiler room and he's going to write this whole book about the past of the history of the Overlook Hotel. And it kind of curbs his, his writer's block for a bit. Mm-hmm. Whereas Jack struggles with it. And he just, once we see the revelation of what that that is, I'll work and no play, make Jack a dull boy. We totally know that he's just an insane person. Like, he's just been typing feverishly for the last three, four months, doing nothing. Like, that's maddening to me. Like, truly. Um, I'm, I'm, where are we at in the story now? So, are, are we basically... We're in the hotel now. And now we're being treated to some pretty iconic, you know, horror film imagery. We're getting the the, the Grady twins, uh, you know, kind of in, in the hallway I wanted to ask you, Matt, before we get before we get a little further, do you remember the first time you saw this film? I did. Yeah. I do. You want to share? It was Blaisdell. Okay. So Jesse and I have a very common element in our film growth. Mm-hmm. God rest his soul, and I mean that. His name for me was Gus Blaisdell. To, to Gus. Yeah. To Gus. Um, introduced me to a lot of what I hadn't sort of understood about film but had been subconsciously curious about in a class that was an elective class at the college that I chose UNM retired professor from Stanford math professor that showed up and just decided he was going to teach film opened up the the man was a genius Mm -hmm. and so the first class I took from him was called images of women but it was just general intro to film yeah and the second one was this horror class Mm -hmm. and this is the first time I saw it with him yeah so I'm Pretty late. I mean, I'm 21, yeah. 20, 21, yeah. somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's a really long answer to I absolutely remember when I saw it. Mm-hmm. And I remember like a lot of Kubrick films for me. Okay. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Yeah. But the first viewing, first viewing being memorable because of the shock element to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And then upon sequential viewings, finding the story to be not quite as appetizing as I thought it was. Clockwork Orange is that to the letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think- this movie has an element of that to me as well. But the first time, I remember thinking like, man, I get what everybody was talking about in that movie. Yeah, well, let me just interpret Kubrick's sensibilities for you because you've been saying it uh, like the last couple of weeks with talking about other films, like leaving you cold, like that feeling of like sterileness. Like there's just like, it's lacking either emotion or depth or just something and whether that be experimental or a tourish, like 
man, Kubrick has to fit that to a T for you. Like 2001 is that to uh, uh, to oh. to the T. Uh, Barry Lyndon, Lolita, like like talk about those are cold films with characters that like vary in emotion and i don't know if we're, we can really relate to anyone in these in these films and the stories are so experimental dare i say look even eyes wide shut is that i know yeah. like why are we bringing up that movie but it continues yeah. exactly what you're saying yeah yeah and even you both- know how much i love yeah noir. yeah I can't even make it through the killing with my eyes awake, dude. Yeah. I hit the forty-minute mark on that, and it's curtains. I'm like, like lights out yeah. every single time. Yeah, and I've sat through some bad noir. Yeah, the thing that kills me about about Kubrick though is just like I just he was just like he was so ahead of his time, and I think just like to do a film like two thousand one with the type of visual effects that it had in sixty seven. So, like you're talking thirteen years before 10, 10 years before Star Wars. It, it's truly remarkable and like it was weird for people like uh, almost all of his films have been like critically panned just for like people not getting them or just leaving them with like weird emotions but he's a director that i feel like you know his films like they're they're very not like where they should have been should have been made you, you know what i'm talking about like can i ask you a question yeah who does this style of film better that you and i are talking about this auteur experimental if you had to choose one, okay. and the filmography that went with it, okay, do you take Altman or do you take Kubrick? Because it's not even close for me. So as cold as you're talking about, and you are absolutely right, you have pinpointed. Yeah, I, it's Altman, and it's not even close yeah. to me. I think I'm. And pick- I hate McCabe and Miss Miller. Yeah, I think I'm picking Kubrick, but that's just that's just me. No, but do you, yeah, no, do no, you no. see the, the corollary that I'm drawing between the yeah. two of them there? Yeah. They're similar, aren't they? Interesting paths. Yeah. They worked and, with and, similar actors, too. Right. Yeah. And a stylized film mm-hmm. that borders on auteur or artistic or experimental. Mm-hmm. And that's a, tough, that's a tough place to play in. The only other one that kind of fits in that, and he's the most obscure of all of them. If you say Lynch, I'm leaving. It's David Lynch. <laughs> but it is. Like, he's got yeah. that He's got that same feel that just leaves you, like, so just, like, icky. And, like, mm-hmm. you're. I don't even know if you're supposed to like it at the end of the day. Like, it, it's, it's weird. But I like how films can offer that, like, compared sure. to just, like, entertainment value. For everything that we're going to say about this film, here's what I will also tell you. Yeah. Like when we get to rankings and all that. Yeah. This film has sat with me on my mind for three days. It has made an impact. Mm-hmm. And there is something to be said about that by my own rules of what's good in film. Mm-hmm. If you leave a film and it's five minutes and you out the door and now you're out to dinner and you ever think about it again, it's probably entertaining, but I don't know if it's impactful. Mm-hmm. This movie has, this is, I don't know, seven or eight viewing for me now. Yeah. It certainly has had an impact on me. I have found myself going back and forth on what I thought and when I was going to come up with my rankings, where I am on this, having discussions, reading. Like, it certainly had an impact on me. And here it is in horror. Mm -hmm. So to that, because a lot of times horror is just simply blood for 90 minutes and goodbye. Yeah. To that. Let me mention the first time I saw this film. It was actually my buddies and I had gone to see the midnight screen of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I ran into you there, actually. You sure did. And I don't know what was more horrifying, that film or like what we watched afterwards. But okay, so it's like 3.30 in the morning. We went over to my buddy's house and we're all just kind of just chilling there. And he puts on The Shining and I had never seen it before. Just casually. At, just casually. Because that was a midnight showing. Yeah. Casually at 2 a.m. in the morning, you put on The Shining. Here, uh, let's watch The Shining tonight. And, and we also were just exhausted. We're just so burnt out. We all fell asleep at like various times. 
But then the the soundtrack is so jarring and the imagery is just so shocking that like we all woke up at like weird times throughout the film. And it was like doing hard drugs. It was just like, what am I watching? Like, this is a bear suit, man. And this music is just like yeah. scrambling my brains. Like, it was a really uncomfortable type of like film experience, which I watched very omnisciently from like the couch. <laughs> like, but years later, I did see it and it was a much more pleasant viewing experience. I always remember the shining clips from the use in, in the film Twister because they're at a drive in theater in that film and they're showing the shining on there. That was the first time I saw those images. Like, anywhere and mm. it was it was it was this it was jack like here's looking, johnny. yeah look here's johnny looking through the thing so mm. yeah it's just yeah you you come at these you know at different angles and you I, you don't re- i don't think i've ever like forgotten when i've seen horror films because like they're, they're just so impactful the way they like whether it's with a group of friends or in the theater as we're going to talk about in a couple weeks on your own or word of mouth like it like i think horror just fits that better than any other genre like can I ask you a question? Yeah. I'd love to do this to you. Mm-hmm. Is horror mm-hmm. your favorite genre of film? I think so. I think if you were going to a, my, my little movie room there, I have like four or five like shelves with films. I, there's like literally one whole shelf is nothing but horror. Like yeah. <laughs> it's one genre. <laughs> it's crazy that that's your preferred genre because it's also mine. Yeah. <laughs> and. Not that that's crazy that, oh, hey, we share a commonality in film preference. I'm not mean saying yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Of all the films. Yeah. Because you can also make a case mm-hmm. that there's way more disasters in that genre than there are successes. Yeah, and it's it's a film that's kind of... I know of, musicals are a close second for you. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Moulin Rouge right here. No, oh. no it's just a... It's also a genre that's just bastardized. It's like at the bottom of the barrel. Like, it's like... It's like there's like porns at the bottom and then like horrors just like kind of like sleeping on top of it. Fair set. Yeah, it's like... That's it's, very fair. <laughs> yes. It's not a fairly treated genre, but I think more than any other subgenre in film, I think you can do just some truly unique original things with it whether it's slashers or sci-fi horror or body horror or you know you know playing on like you know the oedipus complex it's, it's, you can do have a field day and it never incest f- violence yeah. sex it never, family and it's it ne- all in and it never feels played out yeah, Jesse, because look, it's yeah. real simple it's the bastardization yeah. or the perversion of normal expectation yeah and that buddy mm-hmm. is rife mm-hmm. with my main thing in film conflict man yeah like if you do that with anything mm-hmm. you have conflict it's why we like batman and not superman say lloyd it seems i'm temporarily late <laughs> how's my credit in this joint anyway your credit's fine mr torrance that's swell i like you lloyd i always liked you you were always the best of them Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. Here's to five miserable months on the wagon and all the irreparable harm that it's caused me. So Danny does the unforgivable, what Halloran told him not to. He decides he's going to... Takes an interest into room 237. Room 217 in the book. More on that a little later. But he goes in and he comes back like all torn up. Like he's all kind of messed up. And Wendy's like, Jack, you did this. You did this. And so this is like, again, Jack, just another string has just kind of popped off his like violin to the bar. This empty, ghostly bar 
to meet up with the bartender Lloyd. It, this might be my favorite scene in the in the whole film, like where he's literally like, "Here's to five miserable months on the wagon." When Wendy accuses Jack of abusing Janny, Danny again, mm-hmm. it's it's paid off because of the setup earlier, mm-hmm. which is him meeting the previous purveyor of the Overview Hotel who killed his family. It's the twins that we keep seeing. Delbert Grady. Right? They've already mm-hmm. had that meeting in yep. the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And Delbert has introduced himself to him, and they're sort of having, am I right? Am I right? Am I, am I sequencing here? No, I that's after this. Okay, so so then e- either way, it still works. Mm-hmm. By, Sh- by Shelley Duvall, Wendy coming in and blaming Jack for what he didn't do, yeah. what it does is it feeds into Delbert Grady's seduction mm-hmm. of Jack into another murder of his family. Mm-hmm. And so we go through this bar sequence, so I'm going to let you have, and then Delbert Grady shows up and we have the conversation between him and Jack. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, blah, 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 blah. And like my family. Yeah. And Delbert Grady is like, I know exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. You know how you fix it? Yeah. And he, he he baits him into it, seduces him into it. And by sh- from everything that Wendy does from that point forward, she's literally putting another nail in her coffin. Yeah. Because it's feeding into that seduction that Delbert put in his head. Mm-hmm. Now, here's what you, you've brought up. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to give you the bar scene in just a minute. Okay. So let me let you do that first. Go ahead and do the bar scene. Well, the initial bar scene is, you know, him you know, talking with Lloyd here. And this is where we kind of get it, where he... Lloyd's the greatest bartender ever, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Like, he, this is where he gives it where Danny, like, that little fucker, you threw my stuff all over the thing. And all I did was grab him a little, little square foot pounds of pressure. And he, he dislocated his, his shoulder. And he's like, and he's like, that bitch will never let me, will never let me live that down as long as I live. So this is kind of a crux with him, and 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 King dabbles into this too, and he has a hundred, two hundred pages to go into detail. Kubrick, Kubrick is able to take this type of thing and do it in five minutes. Which, Matt, tell the listeners real quick when adapt because we've done a few adaptations now. On do an example of what it looks like on page, and then what that looks like on screenplay. So if you read, like I said, say you have a novel that's that's written, okay. Um, it was a rainy Thursday night, and the streets were washed in sin and jealousy. Sally ran the quick of her thumb over the sharp blade of a knife, thinking of all the ways she was going to make that bastard pay. The time was now. Her blood was rife with anger, and he was a ripe peach to be picked. Okay, that reads really well in a novel. Like, yeah. I just made that up. Like, that's very prosy. Mm-hmm. On screen, that looks like this. Mm-hmm. Exterior, street, night. It rains, period. Hard, period. Interior, kitchen, day. Sally, comma, 45, domestic goddess, uh, yet unrefined because the man, blah, 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 um, strokes, the, uh, strokes the blade of a knife. Like, it's so much more concise <laughs> so and dry. Yeah. So we can, like, what I said in the initial is maybe a half a page to a page. Mm-hmm. You can expand on that. Yeah. We can do that in screenplay. Yeah. Six lines? It's real quick. If even. And I think people don't get that. Like, when I think that they have a lot of, like, issues with, like, well, they didn't adapt it, like, properly, or they left this part out, or they left this part out. Like, the movie can't be 10 hours either. Like, <laughs> they have to make... No, that's a Netflix series. Yeah, there you go. there's about two hours of actual usable material. There you go. go. There you go. But, like, yeah, you have to make these cuts, and it's just interesting to see kind of, like... Why that's like a crux. Like people like to compare books to films. The book was better than the movie. I don't like to make that argument. Nor I like do to. I. I like to say that each medium stands on its own because they are so different. They have to. Yeah. 
Yes. For the for, book, look, the book, man, is you making the movie in your head as you read yeah. the pages with no time constraints. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's going to be better. Yeah. The movie exists in 120 minutes, which is max 100, 120 pages, mm-hmm. and the director's vision that's laid out with very specific beats. Go back to Ghostbusters if you're curious what I'm talking about. Yep. That doesn't allow the freedom of your own mind to wander. Of course, the book's going to be better. Yeah. No, has anyone ever taken a terrible book and adapted it into a film? Like it's not a common thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a bestseller yeah. that gets bought and then adapted, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So then we get the the, the meeting in room two thirty seven. So this happens before the Delba Grady bathroom bit, where you know Jack goes in there this time, and there's this beautiful naked woman who like really sireny kind of comes out and like walks up to him it's, it's just so ghostly it's just so it happens so slow you know what i mean yes that's the thing with kubrick's films is like when there's like an action to be had like i think the the path to get there it's like it's a slow burn in that sequence we see that a little later with scatman crothers but he walks and then obviously she turns into this hideous thing and it's like and she's just chasing him like let's just the the, the shining has these sequences that are whether it's the blood in the elevator, the two twins in the hallway, you know, red rum on the door, the hedge maze, just like images and sequences that are forever synonymous with this film that not all of those are in the book. Like that's like screen creation that like we reference. here's Johnny. Like that's an improvised line for this film. Like it's just it's a true testament to like how this film's like remembered, like. We remember the blood coming out of that elevator in The Shining. It doesn't make any sense. It's so confusing, but like, that's an impactful image, and it's real. They actually they did that. Yeah, <laughs> not computers. Do you know what they use for the blood? Is it just uh, food coloring yeah, in water, you know, like, yeah. corn syrup, or mm-hmm, something? Mm-hmm. Can I piggyback on what you just said there? Yeah. There's three lasting images, and we can go down the line. But the three lasting images in this movie mm-hmm. are: here's Johnny through the door, mm-hmm. this woman in the bathtub, which yeah. you're about to get to, mm-hmm. and the decomposition of her as they're making out into a zombie. Yeah. And then either the blood pouring out of the elevator and down the hall or the incessant looking at these twins. Mm -hmm. Here's my big criticism, not with this movie, but with Kubrick. Okay. None of those do a goddamn thing Mm -hmm. to move the story forward. Let me take the first example. Okay. Here's Johnny through the door. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, let me do Let me do the one that we're doing right now, which is the woman in the bathtub. Okay. Siren shows up. He approaches her. Oh, my God. He's a cheater. No, that's not what this is about. Mm -hmm. They make out. Her skin starts to fall off. And then she turns into a zombie kind of thingy. Yeah. And she's chasing him and he runs away. Mm -hmm. I ask you, Jesse. Yeah. What is the other than we know that he's crazy, but maybe he's not because I actually think the movie is more of what you said. My take on the movie is it's more about ghosts and less about his crazy. He's crazy, Mm -hmm. but it's more about ghosts because everyone sees him and a crazy man sees these images. Everybody sees ghosts. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think it's more of that. So this thing decomposes in his arms as they're kissing Mm -hmm. and he runs away. And what? It's the only thing that this that this propels is it, it lets us know the mystery of room 237, but then it also gets Halloran down there because of the shining element. Now, let me just kind of say in the film and even in the book, too, the, the, the actual shining element, this telepathy between individuals is this the, much more important. But it, I also buy it less in both versions. Like to me, like I've never thought of the like to me, the, the, the title's The Shining and I, I never like think of like, oh, the 
the parapsychology between two people like communicating to each other. I always remember the madness of Jack Torrance, like in both versions. Okay, you are echoing exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. So th- that that part's not important to me, but like it, to me, what it does is it, it's it's setting a very uncomfortable tone, like those images and. The, the, the elevator bit just goes unexplained for until the very end. And maybe it's still unexplained, but like it's just setting a tone and a chess piece that we're about to play. That's it's a little it's just unsettling. It's just go ahead. So we run away. So he runs away from decomposition lady, mm-hmm. naked decomposition mm-hmm. lady. And look, it's shocking. And yeah. seeing her in the bathtub with her rotting skin and mm-hmm. her rotting ass. And like it's it's shocking. <laughs> and as he's running away, we're like, yeah, I would run too. And then. It's a rhetorical question, but yeah. then, and then what? Yeah. And then what? Yeah. Because then, and the answer is nothing. Well, it's Hellerin having like a psychotic episode in his bed that, like. Okay, so then, if that's the cue that brings Hellerin back, mm-hmm. then why does Danny need to show up abused? Because that's actually what brings Danny. Mm-hmm. When, <sighs> yeah. So we're getting into it. Okay, this is my point. You know, every week, right? Yeah. Like, it's a moment in this movie that, for me, doesn't do anything to move the story forward. It's it's a cool, shocking, yeah. visceral moment that looks, oh, my God, he's making out with this woman and her skin's falling off. It's like a leper or something, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's shocking enough. Mm-hmm. Shelley Duvall doesn't get washed away down the hall in the blood. Yeah. The twins don't attack Danny. And yeah. here's the other thing, too, which I'm going to get to in just a minute, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. Yeah. When here's Johnny shows up and he breaks through the door and his hair is his his head is stick through that little mm-hmm. um, piece that he's cut out, mm-hmm. his hand goes to the doorknob and he unlocks it. Mm-hmm. To what end? She slices him with the knife and he runs away again. It's nothing. Yeah. They're shocking moments that add up to exactly Jesse. Yeah. I know we're disagree on this. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. It doesn't kill the film for me because no, it, like no, no, I'm, it, say, I'm not saying that it doesn't yeah. for me either. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's just a tone, like like to to me the the story is actually it's it's a pretty simple story. It's just it's going crazy. And wants to kill his family. Exactly, and so so we're watching the the path to get there, and I think in turn it's just kind of like a total acid trip for the viewer to kind of go through this. Like the layout of the hotel is is bizarre already. The design of it, like the 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 architecture the, the the clothing that Danny's wearing the hedge maze like it's just it's just so freaking bizarre. She does dress him weird. You're right. Well, I want to talk about that here coming up. Can I get into like some of the the possible? Yeah, go. So there's a great documentary called Room Two Thirty Seven, and it's all about like the would be parallels and theories of Kubrick's intention or just like symbolism. And it's I I, I like this about film because you can't do this in a book. It's hard to do it in music, but on film, because it's a visual image, you can kind of pick 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 apart these type of things and kind of piece it to something. And the only one who knows it, whether it's going to be something is Kubrick, and the man's dead, so he's not going to tell you anyway. Right. So this it's all fan speculation, but like the first big one is the, the, the killing of the American Native American. And just kind of like the use of the weirdly placed calumet baking powder with that Native American logo. Like it's in two shots when Halloran like looks at Danny when they're in the storeroom and, and it's when Jack's in there. And it's it's very like intricately placed that you're like, why is that even there? But like, did you kind of get a weird kind of vibe to that? So they have this Colorado room and this is where Jack does his writing. And it has this really kind of over-the-top Native American decor from the carpet to the to the buffaloes and the, the, the pictures. Like, 
To even the Colorado state flag hanging in the corner. Yeah, I, I wonder why. Like, I don't think that's in the book because Kubrick wrote this at Estes Park, uh, north of Boulder. Right. And that's like a very, like, like Victorian-ish hotel. It's not like Native American. Like, it's an odd choice, like, to pick. So... Whether he's making some type of symbolism, Ullman later states that when they were building the hotel, they had to ward off an attack from the natives because they were building it on an Indian burial ground. Could that therefore mean that the elevator cushion of blood is the blood of the genocide of the American Indians? Who knows? But that's, that's an interpretation if you want to have it. Then there's the whole Apollo moon landing conspiracy. This one's my favorite one just because of like, <laughs> it's just so crazy. So... The moon, the moon room is what they call room 237. 217 in the book, changed to 237 in the film. 237,000 miles from Earth to the moon, staging that Kubrick did in fact stage the moon landing and filmed it. But then again, talking about Danny's weird color, like he has this Apollo 11 rocket ugly yeah. sweater yeah. as he like walks to the moon room. Like it's just weird. You know what I mean? Like, like if you want to take it one step further, you can even argue with Wendy's moccasins that she wears the whole time. Like mm-hmm. they're all dressed weird except for Jack. He's yeah. in pretty standard attire. Just like mountain man like plaid and like boots. It feels like Colorado to me. Yeah. So I, I don't know much about Stanley Kubrick insofar as where he grew up and mm-hmm. what his relationship with the West is. I think you and I have a good relationship from the West as yeah, we yeah. live in it. Yeah. So maybe this is... Mr. New York trying to do his best imitation of the whatever. Okay, yeah. um, I, I I don't want to take. I want you to finish this thread because I yeah. love what you're doing with these yeah. film theories. Because I have two things I want to say about yeah, this. Yeah. So keep going if there's more. Yeah. There, well, there, there's one more big one, and it's kind of like kind of like the Holocaust on top of that. Kubrick always wanted to make a film called The Aryan Papers. He never got around to doing it. It's right there with Napoleon and his un, unmade mm-hmm. films mm-hmm. that he spent years doing. Mm-hmm. But everything from like you know like all the like. The overtly Disney ref again another the Mickey kicking the the thing the, the the football like these Disney references all around Danny and Jack being like the big bad wolf and like the hunting for like the swine like whether it's just kind of just peppered in throughout um, I, I I don't I don't know if I buy into any any of these theories and whatnot but here's what I like about this Matt to me this is where film takes on. Something that's, I think, beyond book, beyond music, beyond kind of any type of art form, really, a painting. Because you're able to, on surface, tell a story about a man going insane trying to kill his family based on the novel by Stephen King. And then, whether it was intentional or that's just what fans find, you're able to kind of, like, look into, like, the man behind the camera or whatever they were trying to say. And that's that's not canon and that's not intentional or whatever. But I like how films can take on a different life after you view them in their rewatchability, in their, their, in their subjectivity. I, I just it's, – it's less a statement about what the theories are in The Shining and more of like I like that film has layers of how you can view a film. It's fun to take all of those theories and talk about it and say yeah. this and that. But I, I'm, I'm going to just give you my opinion on mm-hmm. that. That's all bullshit. It's not any of that. Yeah. It's none of that. Yeah. Um, it speaks to, I think, where the movie is successful with everything that you just said so aptly mm-hmm. to where I sort of struggle with this. Mm-hmm. By the time this movie comes out, we've got Lolita. We've got Barry Lyndon. We've got Strange Love. Uh, we have Spartacus. We have The Killing. We already have a legacy of 
a very established director who has found a formula to work. Strange and Obscure works even better in horror. But I'm going to also say he was unpopular. Like, a lot of his films, again, he made this film because he had done Barry Lyndon, Lyndon prior. It was such a disaster, he needed to do something commercially viable, but also to, he wanted to still do his artistic autourishness with it. So he did The Shining, and this film wasn't even a big hit. You know what I mean? No. Like, it was like, he, he was never like the Spielberg. His films didn't make, oh, like, no. hundreds of millions. Like, they were really confusing for people. Later on, I think that these films have taken on yeah. a more critically acclaimed sort of position, and I want to get to that in just a minute also. Yeah. But if you put that stuff in there, it is the brilliance of film. Yeah. And if you're playing with something as, as final as death, yeah. and then if you take something as serious as... What happens when the domestic unit breaks down? Now, it's usually done in horror through the mom's point of view, mm -hmm. but to do it through dad's point of view... It's fascinating. It's super fascinating because mm -hmm. then we're playing with gender roles and who's more important and what does it mean mm -hmm. and brute strength versus... Like, there's all, like taking life out versus mom bringing it in. There's lots of cool things to play with with that. Yeah. And then if you put some weird colors and strange designs and odd clothing choices... It feeds into that. And I would argue that when he does this movie, what is this, 90, 80, 1980? He's mastered that. Mm -hmm. He's already figured that out. Yeah. It serves to perpetuate a feeling of strangeness in the film. Okay, so I think it works. And I love the discussions. I don't mm -hmm. buy any no, no, of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I'm about some of that discussion. Yeah. Like the Native American one to me is really interesting, especially considering the, there's that, the way it looks. There's and, that part two when he's bouncing that ball off that like... Native American tapestry, like... Well, and also to that, like, what a good actor Jack Nicholson, because you can tell he actually knows how to throw and catch. Yeah. And we can say that a lot of actors in sports films don't. So yeah. to Jack Nicholson and whatever mm -hmm. background he had, amen. Yeah. It, he looks like he's really good at it. Mm -hmm. Isn't that weird to say? But he, yeah. like, I noticed that as he was playing. Mm -hmm. And he's pretty, pretty agile and semi-athletic there. Mm -hmm. All of that serves the purpose of making the film weird. Mm -hmm. And the movie... Even if all of that is gone, whether it's the Comet, you know, baking powder or yeah. it's already weird. Yeah. So Stanley Kubrick is monetizing or doubling down on a type of film that he's already sort of established. And here's my issue. And mm -hmm. it deals with we've kind of touched on this a little bit already. Mm -hmm. Film appreciation versus film theory. Yeah. The only difference between those two things mm -hmm. is how obscure the references can be yeah. so that you can all sit around in some group intellectual masturbation technique to prove <laughs> that each one of you is a little bit more film savvy than X. And you can reference German auteur theory in the 30s versus the whatever blah yeah. blah 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 and yeah. this movie yeah. is that in spades and that's why later on as we move through the critical analysis of this film it has achieved what i think is a remarkably inaccurate depiction of what this is because this so the, yeah. the, the theories that you just read yeah jesse yeah i read yeah. two or three thesis on that in blaisdell's class that yeah. was the assignment yeah. there has been so many yeah. phds written on the internal meaning of of the shining and the fact is none of them are corroborated or in even my opinion supported yeah and it's that hold on I, I, you yeah. want, give me one more second yeah it's that Here's film appreciation versus film theory. Mm -hmm. And all the people that didn't buy into The Shining, those are just 
film light yeah. and we are film savvy yeah. and here's why and it's just so gross yeah. but here's, and self-serving. Here's the thing, I can have a foot in both of those worlds. But, I do too. Yeah, but also like here's the thing and here's the brilliance of film. Those things are there if you want them to be there. Right. And the film film proper as an entertainment value and, and story, that's still there too and that's untouched. They can coexist. It's just the it depends on the person who wants to go there and further that. To that. Yeah. That's why you and I love film. Exactly. No, seriously. God bless film. No, yeah. I love it. So I don't know what that has to do with the story. Yeah. That was a pretty good 10 minutes. I can't wait to re-listen to this. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. Go. But then, you know, it, so that that's wrapped up. But, like, we're talking about all those things with this film. That's like, what I'm saying. Right. We're, we're not doing that with, like... You know the Expendables or like Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah, we're not doing that with those type of films. Like there, there's, there's, there's more to be had with with something like this. And I just love that it's in horror. I love that Kubrick at least made one of these in horror. Yeah, I don't just uh, yes. Yeah, I echo that t- twofold. Yeah. So who's coming up the mountain, Mister Halloran? We got a nice cameo by our our friend Tony Burton from Rocky. <laughs> I forgot he was in this movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he's coming up the mountain here um, on the snowcat here because Sidewinder, Colorado is just totally snow packed in. Again, this is awful. This is why I wouldn't want to live in Colorado. Is winters are a nightmare. <laughs> you and me like the sun. Yeah, exactly. So you know he shows up, but um, this is when we kind of get all work and no play. Make Jack a dull boy. They filmed it 134 times. She whacks him on the head, locks him in the in the the storeroom, and who comes and lets him out? Mister Grady. Grady. But we don't see Mister Grady. It's just him talking through the door, which I like that. I like that. The ending of this movie is notably different than the ending of the book. And mm-hmm. we'll get into some of those differences here. I think you even prefaced that earlier. Yeah. But this is a difference in the movie than the book going forward. But mm-hmm. um, we're sort of starting that divergent story. Yeah. Okay. But and we're ahead. in full madness territory at this point. He's not only destroyed the snow cat, but the, and then the radio... But now he's equipped with an axe, and he's coming. And he's coming for Danny, for Danny and Wendy. <laughs> he's like, Danny. <laughs> Boys loved him, like lumbering through through the through the overlook, kind of like kind of very limpish, like. Do you know what part I really like in this film? Yeah, is when she's dragging him unconscious mm-hmm. to that storage room. Yeah, because there's an element of, and he's gonna wake up, and when he does, Wendy, you're done. And she barely gets away. I mean, he doesn't grab her, and she pulls away, but. Mm-hmm. She gets out just about the time he regains consciousness. It's it's pretty damn quick. I love that sequence in this film. Yeah, and so yeah, so he's he's letting them have it. He's gonna he's gonna get to them, but here comes Mister Halloran to kind of like interrupt Jack's fun, and just kind of one of the the differences. Now, I'm gonna read these off real quick because they're, they're since we're kind of here at the end. Um, the all work and no play make Jack a dull boy is only seen in the film. That's non-existent in the novel. Novel portrays Jack as initially likable, whereas film Jack is already kind of more sinister. I mean, from his hairdo, we can tell that. Mm-hmm. Um, film plays more with the writer's block element, which leads to inevitable madness. Leaves out this boiler. I already mentioned that boiler scrapper. Like, Thank God, because like this film would have been three hours long. Uh, Danny's a more open character in the novel about his shining abilities. Uh, but in the film, he plays it a little more closed off, which... You know, for a creepy kid factor in horror, like I, it plays well, like that he's so like silent all the time. Uh, Ullman has a bigger part in the novel, or in the film, he's just kind of there to kind of move the dialogue forward or move the story out of the beginning. Um, Kubrick tones down the early family tension and reveals family disharmony 
much more gradually than than does King. In the film, Danny has a stronger emotional bond with Wendy than with Jack, which feels Jack's rather paranoid notion that the two are conspiring against him. Uh, for Jack's weapon of choice in the book, it's a roke mallet for like... Um, What's that? Uh, it's... Um, Croquet, like a croquet oh, mallet. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, whereas film, it's it's an axe. That's visually an axe. I think is is better than a rogue mallet. Uh, the boiler subplot actually comes back into play. The boiler actually destroys the Overlook in the book. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole other stupid bit with these reanimated hedge creatures at the end that actually they're like a dog and a lion and bullshit. And they like they 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 go into like attack mode. And obviously in 1980 we didn't have the technology to do something like that. Thank Christ. And then we turn yeah. we turn the hedge animals into a hedge mage, which I think fits. It's great. It fits it better because the the maze is the maze of the overlook. Like it's the way it's designed. It's very maze like already. Or the maze of the human psyche as well. Yep. And Halloran doesn't die in the in the in the book where he's killed in this exact sequence where I'm at right now. So I'm glad you brought that up because I really want to talk about this. Yeah. So yeah, like I did a lot of research and I've read the book. It was a couple of years ago. But just kind of like, you know, doing, you know, the differences between, because it is so drastically different. It's the tones of both the Shining novel and the Shining film are so different. Uh, if you want something closer to what King wrote, they made a, a miniseries movie with Steven, Steven Weber and I think Rebecca De Mornay. It's not good. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it follows his novel closer. And I think in that adaptation, I think you actually see where Kubrick's brilliance lies to switch it up a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talk about that Halloran bit. Yeah, Halloran has through the shining ability with Danny come to a position of there's some conflict and some issue that I should probably go check on that family and the Overlook on. Mm-hmm. He shows up, and we're thinking, okay, so here comes Scatman Carruthers, Halloran to protect Danny, save the family, etc., etc., etc. I'm gonna say something in this mm-hmm. that sounds really hot takey and sniper one-liner on. Um, social media guy but I'm going to say it okay Okay. as he shows up in the Overlook Hotel and hello is anybody home and Jack sneaks around the corner Mm -hmm. and axes him to death Mm -hmm. the death of this character is less meaningful than the death of David Dunn in Glass it's absurd Mm -hmm. that we've spent any time developing this character at all to do him off this way and I got it other than the violence and the shock value that Kubrick doubles down on that is without question for me the worst moment in this entire film and it's not because a character that I like died it is such a stupid and senseless death it is a huge issue for me in that film. Please help me overcome that, Jesse. No, no, yeah, like I, I don't think I'm going to disagree with you. Like to me, just the Halloran bits in the film, like they, they don't play well. And it's, it's it, we have to suspension disbelief by that he's able to shine with Danny for him to even get here. But thank God that someone like Halloran even worked at this hotel to have this ability. You know what I mean? Like there's a twist of fate that we have to already take with this. But yeah, Halloran dying, like it just, it, it comes so out of nowhere. And it's just kind of, I just equate it to the madness of Act 3. Like it's just to, to count up the body count. You brought it up earlier. In the As cut. he dies on the Native American floor decor. Yeah. Well, why isn't he scalped then? <laughs> I don't, I don't See, those, none of those theories actually hold any water yeah. when you get down to yeah. it. Um, you brought it up a little bit earlier, and that's the title of the movie is The Shining. Mm-hmm. And Halloran with Danny 
is the conduit to sort of express that ability. And at this point, Danny isn't around anymore. It's Tony taking over Danny in protection mode, essentially. Yeah. Danny's gone. Mm-hmm. It's He's full on Tony. That's yeah. how he talks and everything mm-hmm. now, right? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Titles are not everything in a movie, and it doesn't make or break it. That's stupid to say that. Mm-hmm. But there's no way this movie should be called The Shining, because that's not what this film is about. And this death of Halloran which is the explanation of this shining ability and the way he's done in in a quick one-off proves that even further. Unless they want to develop it that maybe it's in Jack 2 and that's how he communicates with Grady. Mm-hmm. It's none of that's developed. Yeah. This movie should just be called The Overlook. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have an issue yeah. with anything that I'm bringing up. I'm just like, well, the movie's not really about that. Yeah, the but shi- to title it this yeah. is bullshit. No, yeah, the shi- this is not about Shining. Uh, the Shining element doesn't play well. It's much more developed in, in the book. Like To me, this is like Jack's story where... Argue- in the Mouth of Madness? Yeah. Is a better title yeah. already taken, but yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So everything's just going haywire at this point. We get the, the weird like uh, dog costume, oral sex bit in the room, which is just so bizarre. It's just again, it's just it's just it's it's another jarring element. I think like yes. Again, David Lynch is good at this too. It's just like he's like he's oh, yeah. he's testing the audience's patience for the grotesque. And like what you're able to handle, like okay, and I like and I like that about horror. I like I like at times to be made uncomfortable. Yes, and you know films as of late by Ari Aster, like Hereditary, Hereditary. I think exemplify that pretty well. Sure, you know they they can be uncomfortable for some. So I think we're in that that mode right now with with this final, and then we're this this run through the hedge maze, which you know Danny Danny very sneakily is able to kind of dush off his. His footprints and kind of follow his path on the way out. Literally backtrack, stepping yeah. in the footprints he's already made to lead his dad to the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And man, I'm dying to hear what your take on that is because which one? Danny. Okay, Danny tricks Jack into the maze. There's mm-hmm. the chase where Jack is after Danny. Wendy, by the way, has survived mm-hmm. and is just sort of running around aimlessly. Yeah. Um, and it's Danny versus Jack. Mm-hmm. The Shining doesn't matter anymore because the Shining person that he can meet with mm-hmm. isn't even alive. And yeah. he's already shined with the twins. So there's no point in that. Yeah. So Tony, mm-hmm. Danny slash Tony, yeah. backtracks. And Jack is stuck in the middle of a maze about the time he escapes to run to Mama's arms. Mm-hmm. And then can I just say this 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 first ending? Go ahead, yeah. We hear the snowcat drive off as Winnie and Danny escape, I guess, down the hill to mm-hmm. civilization. Yeah. Jack is stuck in the maze, and then we go to black, fade back in, and we find him frozen to death. Yeah. Gets a decent enough death, but mm-hmm. what about that for you? Hey, it works for me. Yeah. To, to me, the, the, the maze exemplifies kind of the... It's like the Jack's kind of in a maze in his own head right now. Like, I don't think he knows which way's up, which way's down. Like, he's totally bananas at this point. And compared to that to the novel, where he actually sacrifices himself at the boiler to save his family... Well, that's great, and that has a more arkish element to a character. Yeah, right. I like this ending too. Like, it's the, the the madness has reached its pinnacle, and the pinnacle's death. Like, this is this was the only I think inevitable outcome for Jack Nicholson's character in this film. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. I just don't know if a frozen corpse yeah pays off the two hours that I've been there. But I, I don't hate it either. I just again. Okay, I think it serves its purpose. He's done, and I'd like to draw a direct correlation between 
well, when you go crazy, it means this, and that's why he's frozen. It's not there. No. But then, like you just said earlier, mm-hmm. a lot of the it's not there isn't there in this film. Like yeah. this bear performing oral sex on this guy is yeah. shocking, but to no avail. Yeah. The woman in the bathtub is shocking, but to no avail. Mm-hmm. The twins, shocking, but to no avail. So, like, at least it's consistent. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. It's just trying to say, yeah, it's, it's no, he's it's, dead. It's all part of the tone. He's dead. And here's the thing I guess you could take away. Yeah. Danny wins. Mm-hmm. Common criticism for me, not Danny's movie, but at least the good guy wins. Well, here, this is this is interesting because they did have an alternate ending where they were like in some hospital and there was this whole hospital. It very vertical, like, you know, like that vertigo deleted ending hospital bit. Like, yes. kind of, th- that's probably good that they got rid of that because that's. Yeah. You go from, oh, yeah, we're like the, the roller coaster has like a little tiny hill to still go over. Like, <laughs> I think the final shot we get of this is the, the, the pinnacle of where this film is going. Okay. So, um, but I'm also anxious to see in November the, the film Doctor Sleep's coming out. And this is interesting because this is Stephen King wrote the sequel to The Shining called Doctor Sleep. It's being adapted by Warner Brothers who made this film. And the sequel looks to be an adaptation of the book, but also a sequel to Kubrick's film. Like, it's so like... Danny a, Grown Up? It's, no, well, it's Danny Grown Up, but, like, it's taking vocal music and image cues from this film while being an adaptation to King's actual... Like, it's... it's, it's oh, my God, it's going to be a disaster. I'm hoping it's good. Like, I don't even know what the book's about because I haven't read it. So, yeah, who knows? I should probably get on that. Yeah. All right, so the last shot. Why don't you serve it up for us? Okay, so mom and son have gotten away, Mm -hmm. and then we just sort of go through the interior of the Overlook Hotel to a wall that has a bunch of pictures of previous events that have occurred at the Overlook Hotel. Mm -hmm. And we focus on front and center the picture that has, I think, a New Year's Eve party from 1927. Fourth of July. Sorry, yeah, Fourth Mm -hmm. of July from 1927. 21. Okay, 21. Formal event, everybody in their tuxedos. And there in front of all of them mm-hmm. is yeah. well-tailored, hair-combed, fairly handsome-looking mm-hmm. Jack Torrance. Mm-hmm. And it then gives you pause to think, well, if he's in that picture mm-hmm. in 1921, mm-hmm. how is he in real life with mm-hmm. his family yeah. in 1980? Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you go with that first as I've set it up yeah. um, and say what you think about that. And then I'll kind of continue what I think about that. Sure. I kind of go one of two ways. Either it's the hotel's claim Jack as one of its own. Yeah. Or, you know, Jack or Jack always, always was part of the hotel. and A ghost. Or any just some like reincarnated version of himself. Either way, whatever you look at it. Actually, give me your version first before I finish what I'm about to say. A lot of people. So when we were going through the endings of horror films. Yeah. You know, my research, this is on all the top 10 lists. Mm-hmm. I don't like this ending. Mm-hmm. What works in this movie for me, and I think that you've alluded to it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Actually, you've alluded to it a lot with me, even off mic, is, is he crazy or is it ghosts? Mm-hmm. I have my definite take on this, which he's not. Yeah, he's crazy. Yeah. But it's absolutely the ghosts in the Overlook that make him they exacerbate that craziness. Yeah. And my argument for that is a crazy man sees ghosts unto himself. Mm-hmm. People. Yeah see ghosts if the place is haunted Mm -hmm. and from you know the bear and the caretaker and the oral sex to the like obviously the blood down the elevator they all see them all of okay so it's ghosts Mm -hmm. if jack is a ghost or claimed by the hotel 
and then reincarnated by the hotel, the hotel should have a further expanse than just what occurs in the hotel. And it almost makes everything that Jack has done insignificant. And the whole movie should have just been in the hotel. So, okay, so what am I getting to here? I hate this ending. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a, a cheap writer's way out to sort of prep you for like, hey, what if you were wrong? Like, I, I hate it. Like I don't get that feeling. I I just I, I, I hate it. I just get the. I, it's like it's 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 in it's an inconclusive type of mm-hmm. ending. Like well, it, sure. I don't think it's meant to like explain one way or the other. But then again, again, what I what I did with the the theories, it it, it takes on another life. Like it's like it's not a a, a tied up the end happily ever after it tied the bow with the no, type no. of ending. It's an ending that's it's. It leaves you thinking a little bit. It leaves you kind of wondering and kind of seeing the film in a different light. Hey, maybe the hotel claimed him. Hey, maybe he was reincarnated and he's just living. He's and he's just living his new version as Jack Torrance, and he was Grady that whole time, back in the twenties. Maybe, yeah, maybe he's just he was just totally insane the whole time, and this is just like a figment. Like I don't know. I don't know what the correct version of this is, and I don't think we're ever gonna find out. But like, I love how you have one take on it. And I'm able to take one take on it. And again, we're talking about it. And like, we don't do that. Like, literally, when we go see like a film, like, again, like I just, The Expendables, because that's just a balls to the walls action film. It's very self-explanatory. To me, this isn't a film that's self-explanatory. I think it's, you have to do a little bit of paying attention. If you doze off, like I did the first time, you're going to be fucked. Like, you need to like... Truly, I mean, you don't need to take notes, but like you have to, you have to pay attention to what the director's putting you through. And I think where I come into film, like you come in really heavy-handedly on writing and story. Yeah. And I think I really come in heavy-handedly on like the director and a director's vision. And I'm willing, for the most part, if I like the director, Fincher, Nolan, Spielberg, Kubrick, Tarantino, Tarantino, I'm willing to take that ride and get on that train with them, so I can kind of see what's in their head at that given moment. You know what I mean? So I kind of like what you said earlier, too, that, like, I don't think Kubrick had anything to prove when he made this film. Right. So his intentions and whatever he put in here, I think he was having fun, but I think he was doing something to truly provoke an audience. I don't think he needed to have a box office winner like The Exorcist. So provocation I, of the audience is an approach, too. Yeah. You're allowed to do that. Yeah. I, man... I don't need a pretty pink bow either. Yeah. I don't I don't need that. Yeah. I almost feel like that ending of that film, mm-hmm. the picture mm-hmm. with him front and center of this yeah. 4th of July party mm-hmm. was an afterthought in post. It could have been cuz there was a there was a different ending. And I'm I'm not even saying it doesn't work. Like it yeah. clearly has brought up discussion like, "Well, wait a minute, if he's in a picture time stamped 1921, and this is in 1980. There's 69 years in between there. Yeah. And we could play out the 69 in that too in film theory and say <laughs> yeah. this is some statement on sexuality. Like yeah. that that's yeah. that's the glory and the bullshit of this film all at the same time. Yeah. I, it, it it doesn't even not work for me. It works. Mm-hmm. It kind of pisses me off in a way. Yeah. Um it somewhat intrigues me and that's kind of like the whole film and I will give you this. Yeah. If that was Stanley Kubrick's idea was to make a provocative film yeah. that here's a mo- the word that keeps coming up mm-hmm. is perplexing. Yeah. He, hashtag winning. Yeah. 
So if he was know, tell a, if he was trying to tell a coherent story with like character arcs and this and that, I don't think he succeeds in that, right? No, for sure. Yeah. So, but that, but also to that, yeah, we've watched an entire slate of films this summer, yeah. that have had ridiculous character arcs, but have pretty clear beginning, middle, and ends. Mm-hmm. This movie also has, yeah. At the base level, a beginning, middle, and end to it. Yeah, literally faded in and faded out with each of the the, the two parts in between. Mm-hmm. So that makes it really tough. Yeah. So are we ready to do rankings? Can or, I read or one quote real quick? For and sure. I think this is going to perfectly sum up our rankings. Okay. So Stephen King, notoriously, out of any of his adaptations of anything that was ever made, that includes like the fucking Tommyknockers, uh, hated this film the most. Because of its lack of being faithful to the novel. And I'm going to read a quote by um, Laura Miller. She's a a journalist. As King sees it, Kubrick treats his characters like insects. Because the director doesn't really consider them capable of shaping their own fates. Everything they do is subordinate to an overweening, irresistible force. Which is Kubrick's highly developed aesthetic. Like, that's him subjecting provocative imagery throughout the film. Yeah. They are Kubrick slaves, these characters. So okay. in King's Shining, the monster is Jack. In Kubrick's, the monster is Stanley Kubrick. Like, I think that's a fascinating take. And I posted a video on Facebook yesterday of like some behind the scenes like footage that Vivian Kubrick filmed, uh, like kind of B-roll of the making of this. If you're a listener, go watch this, check this out. It is a fascinating watch. Not only do you get to see the frustration of both Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, but you kind of get to see kind of a little bit of what an asshole Stanley Kubrick was like on set, but how much in control he wanted to be of his picture. From the writing to the directing to like how things looked. When you watch it, you truly see a master at work, which is fascinating. And you don't get that look into film very often. Please go check out the, the, that, that footage. It's awesome. I, that's great. I yeah. love that quote. Mm-hmm. I actually, will you read it again? Because I know people don't want to have to rewind it. Like, re- actually, read that quote again because it's it's really really yeah. smart. As King sees it, Kubrick treats his characters like insects because the director doesn't really consider them capable of shaping their own fates. Everything they do is subordinate to an overweening, irresistible force, which is Kubrick's highly developed aesthetic. In King Shining, the monster is Jack. In Kubrick's. The monster is Kubrick. Who wrote that? What's her name? Laura Miller. To that. Yeah. Yeah, great. That sums up this this whole thing like yep. that. So let's let's get right to it, Matt. So we have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Where are you at? Oh. I don't even know if I know right now. You could ask me tomorrow and it might be something different. I've okay. gone back and forth. I'm not going to tell. Like, I've actually been as low as Well on this, Jesse. Okay. I've been as high as Top Shelf because it's auteur and sort of, I'm not Top Shelf, like single barrel. Yeah. And that how unique it is. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take the gutless way out on this and go with the mean between the two. Okay. I think it's call. Okay. And what I would say is this is a potential rot gut for me Mm -hmm. at moments because the events that happen have no sequential or chronological movement of story. And like mm-hmm. you said, that's huge for me in film. And I think we have to fall King for some of that because he laid some of that foundation in his novel like that it's based on. But what does buy that off or provide me enough patience to get through what's, I think, a 30-minute too long film anyway. Yeah, problem. Is that it's so interesting when it does occur. Like as much as I ripped on that woman in the bathtub. Yeah. It's a terrific scene. Yeah. As a standalone scene, if that someone just put that scene and said, watch this, mm-hmm. 
you'd be like, oh my God, I got to see that. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Or a kid on a tricycle, what looks to be like fleeing from two twins. (laughs) Yeah. Man, that is, I'm on on board. Mm -hmm. But when you put it all together, I don't think, as much as I don't think it's worth the ride, it is also worth the ride. So, okay, so all of that being said, I've been as low as well. It's not rock yet, but it's been as low as well for me because it's frustrating at times. Mm -hmm. It's been as high as single barrel because it's really unique. Even from the production thing that you brought up with the Steadicam versus the Dolly Track, Mm -hmm. it's call, and I mean call, call. Not call plus or call minus, it's call, call. Right in the middle. And that's weird yeah. for me to say about this movie, but it's because its books are so balanced with yeah. good and bad. But you know what? Like even like when I even suggested that we tackled this film, I kind of knew that was gonna be where you fell, just because I know the type of film Kubrick makes and like the elements that are in playing The Shining. It's like your total antithesis of like what what you tend to enjoy and like in films. Well, you know how I feel about two thousand one and Strange. And I love it. I love both those films. Right, like, and I hate both those yeah, films. Yeah. So. In the Kubrick filmography, yeah. it, Full Metal Jacket is my favorite by a mile. But mm-hmm. I can also point out the same flaws in that movie. My mm-hmm. favorite part of that movie is the shock moment when when yeah. Private um, Pyle. Pyle blows himself away to mm-hmm. a backdrop of red, white, and blue. And then it's born again hard as mother in the next sequence. Yeah. Like, it's <clears throat> there's a lot of bullshit to get to that. Yeah. Like, the best part of that movie, without question, is the first half. Yeah. And then I also love, like I sort of prefaced it earlier, mm-hmm. the idea of youth in Asia versus youth in Asia. Yeah. Okay, so we can we can play. As they sing it's the, a long way to get to those two As they two sing moments. the Mickey Mouse theme. Right. As they march through war. Right. That's loaded too. And so that's why I brought up Altman earlier too. Yeah. Because I think Altman does the same thing with like even McCabe and Miss Miller or Shortcuts or. I think Altman does the same thing, but he's more talky about it. I think there's more dialogue driven films like Nashville and um yeah mccabe and mrs miller and not so brave as to venture into horror or science fiction to it it's yeah. just basic americana drama yeah, yeah americana drama yeah. so yeah um yeah so do you, you were right jesse yeah. yeah like call call for me in this is probably about as best as i'm gonna get okay for anything he's ever done no yeah no that and that's that's you and the director having that yeah fair excellent I have to go top shelf. Like this is a like to call it an epic horror film is like an understatement. Like what other films have this type of budget, this type of set design, its use of color, its camera work, its soundtrack, the performance. Like this is my favorite Jack Nicholson performance. I love his turn as the Joker. Yes. I love Silence of, or yes. not Silence of the Lambs. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I love him in Five Easy Pieces. Like that'd be a film to talk about one of these days too. This as is my, bad as as bad as the postman is. Yeah, the remake. Yeah, he's it's not because of him. No. He's, and him and Jessica Lange are hot in he, that film. He's one of my favorite actors ever, and he had a certain a great stretch here. But then again, kind of what I said earlier, I'm willing to take this crazy train ride with the filmmaker doing whatever he's trying to shove in there, and kind of seeing where it ends up. And at the end of the film viewing, I'm confused. I'm a little shocked. I'm horrified. I'm unsettled. And I like feeling those emotions when I watch a film. I don't like just feeling just satisfied and like entertained. Like I laughed and then I I leave and I walk to the car and I'm like, yeah, that was a good Friday night spent. This leaves me with like homework to take away with me. It leaves me thinking for weeks 
for months. And I've been thinking about this film since the first time I saw it in that hazy, sleep-induced coma uh, <laughs> watching it that night. Yeah. Like, that's a testament to the filmmaker and the film that he put out. And you can't say one's better than the other, but I like what Kubrick took from King's novel and kind of made it his own vehicle. Like, that's kind oh, of... Oh, he rescued a disaster of a story in yeah, a novel. Yeah, that's kind of his... That's kind of like his, his, his doing, so... But again, I love 2001. I like parts of Clockwork Orange. I love Dr. Strangelove. This is, but this is, this is my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. And I think because it resides in horror, it adds an even special place in my heart. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm at, top shelf. Like the the imagery, everyone knows the the, the twins. Come play with us, Danny. Everyone knows the, everyone knows here's Johnny. Like it's, it's taken on a life of itself that like, I don't think you could say the same thing about King's novel. I don't disagree with a single syllable you've just uttered. Yeah. I agree with everything yeah. you said. Yeah. And I wish I could just say, you know what, Jesse, you're right. Because I'm actually telling you, mm-hmm. you're right. There's I don't disagree with any of that. Yeah. My problem is, and I, I can't mm-hmm. I can't come to a place that's not insanity with it, is what do I do with all the shit that got me to what you just said? Yeah. Because a lot of it I think is is absurd. Yeah. Jack's great. Shelly's great. Mm-hmm. The kid is great. Yeah. Um, and if I th- you want to just look at like kids in horror, it usually revolves around two things, like some crazy drawing or painting with crayons on the wall or a piece of paper and some weird toy that moves across the floor by its own doing. Like that's the general mm-hmm. sort of kid horror trope. This isn't that. This yeah. is a weird kid on a tricycle with a finger that talks yeah. that's possessed by like, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Yeah. I just, as I was sitting there watching this, can I make an admission to you? Yeah. I couldn't even get through it in one sitting because I was so <laughs> flipping yeah. bored. And that's okay. I and mean, like, and I, I totally understand. Like, the, like the, the, that beginning act is a lot of sitting and talking and walking around the hotel, and it's a slow burn. The whole film's a slow burn. It's two hours and twenty five minutes. When the blood rushes out of the elevator in this movie, yeah. I literally Denise was watching it with me. Yeah. And I went, oh, yeah. And she's like, I know. Yeah. But yet, but I'm I'm willing to like we're yeah it's 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 a slog for you a little bit. I'm willing to take the absurdness and the horrific tendencies and seeing where those lie. Is it? Can I just say this? Yeah. Is it a credit to the film that a movie that is really close to being well minus to rot gut plus is Call Call? Like is that a, that's a credit to Kubrick? It's and it's doing something to you. Yes. Yeah. It's not just like it's not a straight admission that it's entirely bad. It's making you ponder things that it's confusing you. And I well, yeah. and I think I've come to answers that I'm okay with. Yeah. And that also is the brilliance of this movie from the crazy conspiracy stuff that you brought up mm-hmm. that we yeah. if you venture into the film theory versus yeah. film appreciation yeah. fucking bullshit spectrum yeah I'm, I'm in the middle of it too mm-hmm. so yeah. yes it is iconic little pigs little pigs let me come in Not by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. (laughs) 
Alrighty, so before we wrap up for this week, we're not going to have a flight question like we typically do. We are going to actually preface and break news of a new venture that we're going to be dabbling into. So I'm going to let Matt take this one. So mostly because of you all out there in Rice Smile Nation, the feedback that we've received from more content has been definitely heard and we're moving forward on that. And that's what I guess this is. We're going to start cutting a midweek episode that we've decided to call a shot Mm -hmm. in sort of line with the the alcohol theme here. Mm -hmm. It'll be a 30 to 40 minute podcast that we cut midweek that still revolves around film some, but also film not all the time. Mm -hmm. It could be something as simple as a flight question that we felt was too big for 10 minutes in a flight to expand it into 30 minutes Mm -hmm. to having something to do with nothing regarding film, which is what the lead-in to the podcast is film, sports, and other stuff. Music, yeah. Right? Yeah. So we'll see how this goes yeah. because we have something I can't, I really want to tease out right now, mm-hmm. but I don't quite know if we're doing it, but I'll give you a hint. I'm going to tease it out, okay? Can okay. I tease it out? Are you okay? Yeah. It might look like 1925 to 1940 radio. Mm-hmm. That's coming, I hope. But on the road to that coming is this midweek episode that Jesse and I are going to launch, which is Rice Smile Presents The Shot. shot. And the shot this week is going to start with? The the 2019 NFL season preview. So not only do Matt and I really love film, that's like probably our first love. Uh, We love music, but we also love sports. Like, I think all variations. Um, Got but, to capitalism. Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To, things they make me pay for. Um, Seriously. But I think more than any other sport, you know, I, I'm a baseball fan. I love basketball. Yes, me too. I love hockey even, the Olympics, all that. Yeah. But I don't think there's a sport that I love more than NFL football. Right. Uh, we've been following it for years. You, a Los Angeles Chargers fan, myself, a Denver Broncos fan. We're going to detail all our division winners, who's winning the Super Bowl, who's making the playoffs, all of that on our first shot, Minnesota. And we're not going to just dabble in sports. We're going to talk about music, like what's the best Beatles album, man, that might be an hour. How fun will that be? Yeah, but the, we'll talk about the best film, we'll do like, like the top three, top three Jack Nicholson performances, right? We could do top three of this. You know, those questions that really could ponder a longer discussion. We inquire any uh, listener input on any of these that you want us to tackle. And yeah, don't worry. The regular episodes will still come out every Saturday. And these will kind of be a midweek on a Wednesday. They won't be every week. They'll be kind of occasionally, like maybe once a month, uh, biweekly kind of a thing. But yeah, we're going to see where this goes. What this started off as, which was a way to expedite the conversations that we had to sit down before we wrote so we could get to work when we wrote <laughs> to what has evolved in. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know where you are on this, but it's I'm shocked mm-hmm. at how Rye has blown up. Me too. Uh, and it's because of you guys. Yeah. This is essentially two film aficionado, self-proclaimed nerds, whatever we are. Talking film bullshit to you that you're listening to it. You're enjoying the ride. I hope you're laughing. I hope you're having a nice drink when you listen. And because that's what it's all about at the end. It's as we have both said, it's one of the three or four most enjoyable things I do all week. Yeah. And to have such a demand for the product that you all want a midweek episode is not a statement about us. It's a statement to you guys. Yeah. And this little 
club or organization or nation that we have created. Yeah. Listen, listeners, I did hours of research on The Shining this week yeah. and watched the film and watched special features just so I could talk about it with you to kind of see help you see this film in a different light. I did the same thing too and yeah. I loved every minute yeah, of it. Yeah, it was fun. It's like being film scholars without having to be too academic about it. We get to do it in the comfort of this room with a nice glass of bourbon. I hate that too academic about it. Yeah. I talked about that earlier. That's like just yeah. this group master of how smart we are because we can reference yeah. you know early 19 German 19 whenever 18 fucking yeah. boring German cinema and I, li- and I like that kind of stuff but if I'm going to talk about it I'm going to make it entertaining for you exactly. yeah I'm not going to bore you to death yeah. so amen to the listeners you can find us on Apple Podcasts Spotify Podbean Stitcher Radio TuneIn Google Podcasts we're on YouTube uh, if you're liking what you're hearing go rate and review us on any of those sites especially Apple Podcasts help find help more listeners find our podcast just by chance that's how i find a lot of my podcasts yeah just by searching and i'm like oh look at that so you know help spread the word and the the numbers and the traction are matt already said it it's amazing to say the least so can't wait to see where this goes so you got you got an, a minnesota coming this this week or the, the week after so whenever we decide to roll that out but you know it's coming can you tell the listeners real quick what the most downloaded episode, or can you do top three downloaded episodes off the top of your head? I will. Have? I will. Our top three most downloaded as of today, number one is actually Alien, which surprises me because I sound like Harvey Firestein in that episode. <laughs> I sound horrible. Uh, num- number two is actually Unbreakable. Wow. And number three is Avengers Endgame, which that was such a huge film, and that was a crazy discussion on that film too. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been it's been fun, and actually, up in the top four is actually The Mist, which shocks me to my core because not a lot of people have seen that film, and I love that people have just kind of downloaded it and been willing to listen. So I love that that might have turned some people onto that film. Excellent. Yeah, I hope that I hope they're getting that out of that too. So next week, uh, Matt and I are actually heading to Derry, Maine, for a trip with uh, one Pennywise the Clown, and we're not tackling the Tim Curry version. Maybe another day. But we thought it'd be a perfect lead up for It Chapter 2 to actually tackle It Chapter 1 from 2017 to kind of be like the perfect like appetizer to like the entree that we're getting on September 6th. So the I'm, flight to the nightcap of those two film podcasts in the happy hour. Yeah, exactly. See how I did that? Yeah, exactly. So I'm excited to talk about it. I haven't seen it. Uh, it's been a while since since I've seen it. Uh, and we actually haven't talked about it a lot like off mic either. So I'm interested to see where we both come at this film from yeah. and to talk about another Stephen King adaptation that's a little bit different too. So mm-hmm. uh, cheers to you, Matt. Cheers to you, Jesse. Cheers to you. I got a hedge maze in the back of uh, my backyard. I'm going to go trim that because I don't want to get lost in that like Jack did. I'm going to go home and get a little peels, which is sleep backwards because mm-hmm. I was up late last night thinking about this film. Yeah. Red rum. Red rum. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Everybody, thank you so much. Have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher Radio, and leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. The Shining is property of Warner Brothers Pictures, Hawk Films, Peregrine Productions, and the Producer Circle Company, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, Red Rom. I'm gonna hurt you. Stay away from me! Wendy? Stay away! Darling?
light of my life. I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm going to bash them right the fuck in. <laughs> Stay away from me.